0: On another edition of the carrie crowley show I want to thank everyone who's tuned in so far i've had a ton of fun putting together these episodes over the last month or so. I've heard from a lot of people who've gone, uh, kind of skipped through the catalog and have listened to various episodes. One of the most recent ones that I know struck a chord with a lot of people, what can Buster Posey do now that he is part of the Giants ownership group living in the Bay Area? I had an opportunity to talk to Larry Bear, Giants CEO on canBR on Thursday night, I was filling in for Adam Copeland alongside Tom Tolbert. And we asked him some interesting questions and he provided some interesting answers. Didn't go into a lot of detail. I think he was probably a little bit annoyed about the line of questioning and How much Tom and I were talking about needing a star to kind of uh, bring people back to the ballpark in San Francisco and set the organization on the right course. But nevertheless, uh, a lot of people have listened to that one. I know that a lot of people have also resonated with my episode kind of tracing the source of Giants fan frustration, walking people back through 1958 when the franchise moved west. From the Polo Grounds in New York and all the way up through the end of the 2021 season, what has transpired over the last two years that has really forced people to lose a connection with this franchise that they've invested so much time, energy, loyalty into throughout their entire lives. Whether you were someone who watched the Giants from the days of the Polo Grounds or someone who grew up on Tim Lincecum and Buster Posey, heard from so many different fan perspectives. I'm even getting LinkedIn DMs right now. So uh, that's a new joy for me. It's not just Twitter DMs. It's people reaching out via email, LinkedIn. Next week, I really want to do a mailbag episode. I know it's the final week of the regular season. I also want to do an episode on Brandon Crawford and all that he has meant to Giants fans and why he's got such a deep connection with the fan base. And yet, another person the Giants will have to replace it was Brandon Belt it was Buster Posey it was Brandon Crawford who kind of anchored that 2021 team helped them win 107 games helped them of course play a pivotal role in building back that connection to the fan base after the COVID year in 2020. So that was really pivotal for the Giants. But since then, it's been a 500 season and a season now where the Giants are now threatening to finish under 500, which a few months ago when they had the third best record in the National League was unfathomable. It is unacceptable. It is not the standard of play. The Giants... As an organization or giants fans should hold themselves to i think that everyone expects much better from this franchise that's why there's been so much frustration that's why there's been so much disappointment i think you know the Giants need to come out and say we have made mistakes we have made errors in our player acquisition process we know that things need to change and we're going to do everything in our power to win your loyalty as fans back and they haven't yet done that maybe they will at the end of the season but I do think that that is a really important component that could go a long way. Giants fans just want to hear from people, hear some accountability, and I don't think there's been enough of that yet. So uh, on a more positive note, I had a great conversation earlier today with Roger Munter, who writes the great There Are Giants sub stack. We talk about the entertainment value, does finishing above or below 500 matter in your eyes, and a little bit at the end about Brandon Crawford and a really important personal story that Roger tells that kind of shapes the framework of how we fall in love in baseball, how we become baseball fans. And so I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Roger's kicking us off today. If you haven't listened to our last episode, a lot of fun topics on that one, but I think that Roger and I have developed a good rapport, and this episode is even better. So here's Roger kicking things off, and thanks so much for listening to the Carrie Crowley show. Uh,
1: yeah. Hello and welcome to another on my side. This is uh the their giants podcast. Uh on on my friend's side, this is the Carrie Crowley podcast. Uh we are teaming up for uh to control all media rights in the Giants related world. uh Carrie, this is uh this was so much fun. We had to do it again. Uh, how are you doing uh on the East Coast on the mourn of the Giants falling below 500 for the
0: first time in three months oh my goodness Roger I I look back at you know last night's game and the excitement that went into it with Kyle Harris on the mound Tyler Fitzgerald making his major league debut which I've been pounding the table for for two months seeing Luciano at shortstop and then seeing the Giants get blown out and fall under 500 and I just can't help but think back to a week and a half ago or so when Greg Johnson came out and said, Farhan Zaidi and Gabe Kappa will be back in 2024. How hard would it have been to say... We'll evaluate everything after the season. We're <laughs> excited about where this season's headed. We've still got an opportunity. It's too soon to make a declaration. I just, I just wonder. And, and that's not to say that I feel that they should, you know, change course, change direction, because I think so much of the success of this regime is dependent on the kids who are up right now. And we're not going to know what these kids are really about until next season. I just think like the Padres could pass them, they could finish in fourth yeah. place and Saying that was just a bit too soon for me. I don't know. I don't know. So
1: let's start out by asking a question that we we kind of went back and forth offline. Um, w- without any doubt, mm-hmm. by the organization's stated aspirations, this is not going to be a successful season. They're they're not going to be a playoff team. They're not. They they have spent most of the last month scrambling for the last of six spots in a pretty weak league. It's a disappointment overall. Does it matter which side of 500 they land on to you? Does it matter if you can nominally call them a winning club as opposed to a losing club?
0: Uh, I think not only does it matter, but it really matters a year after you go exactly 500 And I'll say this, it may not matter to the average fan whether they go 79 and 83 or 80 and 82, 82 and 80, but it matters to me as someone who spent five years as a beat reporter because every story that you write that's big picture about the franchise, like five years from now, we're not going to remember the 2023 season as the year that the Giants fell apart in the second half of the season that it was an ugly September you forget those small anecdotes in the big picture and you just tend to say oh they were under 500 yet another season and you yeah. tend to look back and say they haven't won a playoff series since 2014 nevertheless when I mean, they won 107 games in 2021 that was a successful season but it's kind of like an accounting error or an accounting state of fact here where if they finish 80 and 82 you'll say they were 500 or worse in four of Farhan Zaidi's five seasons. And I think that when you're talking about the big picture and when you're talking about the the way that fans judge an organization long-term, 82 and 80, being able to say they were over 502 of the five seasons as opposed to one of the five seasons, that makes a significant difference in the discourse. And should it? I don't know. I mean, it's kind of like talking about the opening day roster. Why do we focus so much on the 26th spot? When you're going to cycle through 18 different players in spots, you know nine through 26 on your roster or whatever, it's it matters from a big picture perspective, and it matters 10 years down the line. Less than it matters, you know, if they're 80 and 82 or 82 and 80 heading into this offseason. How do you feel about it?
1: Yeah, well, you know, I pose this question because I kind of go back and forth. Um, Yeah, so I the formative years of my Giants hood (laughs) fandom are kind of the 70s. You know, I, I, mm-hmm. as a kid, I watched Mays and McCovey and Marichelle and I remember those guys. I'm really fortunate in that. But my teenage years almost exactly line up with that era that you so rudely called the dark <laughs> years on your podcast last week, um, which, which were a pretty dismal time, but they bonded me to the organization in some strange ways. And I remember at some point in my adult years going back and looking maybe when baseball reference first came on and you could look at the season, uh, the, the franchise history. And there was actually a year, 73, I believe it was, where they were a pretty decent team. They won like 84 games. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, huh, that's weird. I remember all those teams being terrible. And in fact, you know, the Reds and the Dodgers were 30 games ahead of them because both those teams were so good. So uh, the the essence of it was still kind of an also ran Um but in some way, it doesn't matter that they had this one year where they're kind of promising and actually pretty good on the field because it fits in this larger context of a, se- a bunch of seasons of disappointments. But I agree with you that if you – I actually would put it the other way and say they now – well, depending on what happens in the next 10 days – that they haven't had a winning year or they've had one winning year in seven seasons. That
0: sounds really bad when you put it in those terms, doesn't it? Yeah, it sounds, it sounds horrific. I mean, that's not the standard of giants baseball. It's not the standard that the organization holds itself to. It's not the standard that fans expect. And quite honestly, when you put it like that, it's just a complete letdown from an expectation standpoint. And uh, what is the reality of what the giants are dealing with I think 82 and 80 on a small scale makes just a huge difference in the way that we think about these things long term, the way that we talk about the team. And you said it, losing seasons under 500 seasons and four or five years under Farhan Zadi, which I think is where the Giants are headed because the Dodgers are good and the Padres are hot right now. The Padres are about to be in third place. I mean, the way this team
1: is very Jekyll and Hyde at home on the road, you can see them kind of like turning around and having a good homestand at the end. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the road failures are unbelievable. I mean, it's funny. These last two years have turned out exactly the opposite. Last year, they made a big rush at the end. Thank you, Colorado Rockies, to get <laughs> up to 500. And this year, they are rushing the other direction to get back to 500. I will say, going to back to what you said about we'll assess at the end uh, and I am not a person who ever wants to see people lose their jobs I'll say no, no. up no. front I think no. continuity is really really important for organizations totally agree the thing that has really jumps out to me and last night uh we're recording this Friday so it's the first game of the Dodger series the thing that has continually jumped out to me the last two years is how many mental errors this team makes and at some point that speaks to something organizational right and it's not the rookies make mental errors because rookies do that yeah when you see veterans continually kind of making just small mistakes that add up to losses over and over again there's an organizational culture issue that's going on. And I use that phrase because I was just listening to someone talk about the Dodgers. You know, the Dodgers in a lot of ways this year have had nothing but bad luck. A lot of things have gone wrong in LA, but they pump out a hundred wins because they have created an organizational culture of winning. And that's
0: not where this club looks to be going right now. No, I think that is probably the biggest concern I have aside from you know, the player acquisition and will these kids who are in the farm system right now turn out to be great? Because look, If Luis Matos, Patrick Bailey, and Kyle Harris, and Marco Luciano all have great seasons next year, or at least look like they can be great players in the future, that will do so much for the future of this Giants organization. That will do so much toward building links back with a fan base who feels a little disconnected right now. A homegrown core with promising talent cures all. It really does. And the Dodgers have had that homegrown core. And yes, some of those players have gone away, but they've replenished with the talent from within. You look at Emmett Sheehan last night. He's in a ro- yeah. he's in a rotation with Bobby Miller and Ryan Pepio, and they, they just have someone every year who comes up and can give them 65, 70 innings and look like they might be the next Walker Bueller. And that's really important. And, and I think that that's the question that the Giants are going to face next season is, are these kids going to turn into legitimate major league players who give the franchise hope and provide the stability, the continuity, the consistency that's needed, because I think consistency and the lack thereof contributes to those mental errors and contributes to kind of the guys who are in and out of the lineup, the lack of, I I guess the lack of mental attention to detail that we see from a lot of these giants teams, the lack of athleticism because they have often hit the free agent market to plug holes. And yeah. you know, let's be honest, the younger kids are just going to be more athletic. Uh, I'm 29 years old and I am not nearly as athletic as I was when I'm 24. I can tell you right now, I wake up with back pain every day, which is why I worry about Marco Luciano. So I mean, I, I think there's so many different elements to dissect here with the giants, but it would do a lot from an entertainment, an efficiency, a consistency, and a product standpoint if these kids turn out to be what everyone hopes they can be. And if they don't, well, that's a, a big step back. If if you're the
1: front office, I, so I described the off-season coming up as sort of a, a, a skill in charybdis. It's like fraught with danger in every direction because it is five years in. Heat is growing. There's no doubt that another disappointing season in 2024 is probably going to be the end of somebody's line. I don't think there's any doubt about that. You've got all these rookies, but who among them actually projects to be a quality major leaguer in 2024? So can you plan around those guys or do you have to say, no, we need to upgrade the roster. Casey Schmidt is going back to Sacramento to start the year, you know, we need a good major league roster to start 2024, not hope that these guys take that step at some point in 2024. How would you handle that? Uh, I mean, there's there's that issue of you shouldn't be thinking about your own job, but everybody thinks about their own job. Oh, yeah.
0: No, and and I think that if you're thinking about your own job, and it's, it's almost, in my opinion, a good thing that the pressure is on because... If you saw incremental progress, it might tell the Giants that, hey, their process is okay, that fans might buy in when there's more wins coming. And that that incremental uh, progress just didn't exist last year. And really, if you look at the record this year, you could make the justification that the kids coming up is progress. But if you look at the overall record, it's not there. And so I think that with the heat being on, the aggressiveness dial is going to have to turn up a little bit this offseason. And I think we'll either see a few one year free agents come in guys who will either be on the opening day roster signing minor league deals and hoping they pan out or stop gaps for a Casey Schmidt, for a Marco Luciano, for a Tyler Fitzgerald, or you'll see the big acquisitions. You'll see two or three guys that they go out and sign, whether it be a Bellinger, a Chapman, a Snell, something like that where they get really aggressive with the money that's coming off the books because I think that this in-between strategy that they've used over the last year to two years of extending guys' contracts that are one plus or extending Jock Peterson, a contract that was far too rich for what he probably deserved this year. Uh, You know, Michael Conforto, if he had a great year, he was opting out. But if he was hurt all year, he was opting in. Ross Stripling's opting in because he didn't pitch well. Uh, I think that that strategy has to go away and it either has to be one year or four or five years, and there can't really be an in between because you look at the three-year contracts the Giants have given out under Farhan Zaidi, Mitch Haniger, Tommy Listella, Anthony Desclafani, Alex Wood. I don't know about the. I mean, I, I, free agency flawed. We all know that free agency is yeah. flawed. You're getting flawed players. I would rather get flawed players who you can clear off the books in a year than flawed players who you've got for three years. That's that's my philosophy on it.
1: I was I was as you were talking, I was trying to quick like look up and I failed. Uh, there was a there was a piece on Fangraphs yesterday um, that was just all of Major League Baseball's contributions from rookies this year, mm-hmm. uh, and it's funny because I, I had a reader question. I do mailbags every week, and I had a reader question the other day who wrote it and it said, uh, how come the Giants rookie club isn't isn't ranked higher uh, on, on people's charts? Isn't this like a generational wave of talent? Uh, and I said, you know, it's good and it's certainly better than what we've seen lately, but uh, other clubs around the majors are doing really well too. Uh, but the thing that jumped out on this Fangraphs chart is if you looked at plate appearances by rookies, they were like fifth or sixth, highest. Mm-hmm. If you looked at War, Fangraphs War, they were about 23rd, and that that doesn't sync up the way you would prefer it to, no. to sync up. Um, and we saw that. We saw that a lot of guys having struggles to make adjustments. We saw with Casey. We saw with Wade Meckler. You get up there, and it's really, really hard to stick. Uh, Louis Matos, so I thought, was really showing progress towards the end of the year. Um, but we should understand this is a lot of talent starting to get here. It's not a lot of talent establishing itself yet. And there's a big difference between those two things.
0: Yeah. And I, I do think like if this group pans out next year and Kyle Harrison brings that electric fastball that he had during the first half of the season with Richmond and Sacramento, if he brings that to the big leagues, there will be people lining up to go watch Kyle Harrison pitch. If Louis yeah. Matos puts on a little weight this offseason, is hitting for average, is more exciting on the bases, gets a little bit more comfortable in center field because we know the glove is there, the tool is there. It's right. just his comfort level, his ability to do it on a consistent basis. If Marco Luciano is hitting 110 mile an hour rockets, I think people will show up. And I think that the Giants will solve a little bit of this problem that they've created for themselves. But it kind of takes me back to a conversation that we also had offline, which is ha- how we fell in love with baseball and how we started yeah. following the San Francisco Giants. And you referenced, you know, the 1970s. Who were the players that made you say, hey, I want to watch this team?
1: Yeah, I mean, so I do have the good fortune that I watched Willie Mays and Willie McCovey yeah. and Juan Marshall, three outrageously entertaining players in a yeah. lot of different ways. Like uh, my memories of Willie Mays, tend to be not hitting it's things like the way his hat would fall off uh, at first base when he when he rounded the base which was so impressive that Gary Matthews used to intentionally knock his off rounding first base uh to emulate Mays um the way he'd like slow up going into second to get a outfielder to lob a cutoff throw back in and then take off for third you know there are so many things he did on the field that were exciting the The force of Willie McCovey's swing was amazing, um, but but as I say, my teenage years were these 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 '70s seasons, and really one of the guys who I think cemented in my mind what fun baseball players are was Bobby Bonds. Yeah, the 1973 season when he should have become the first forty forty player in history, uh, but spent all of September not hitting a home run um, that was one of the that was a really similar thing for me and the guys who have that kind of power speed combo have always thrilled me I love watching fast guys I wrote this today it's no surprise that after watching the Diamondbacks run circles around the Giants for two days Tyler Fitzgerald was finally brought up because this is one of the more athletic speedy guys in the system but to me speed and power is what really thrills me about this game uh and bobby bonds was kind of a personification of that when i was like a 12 13 year old kid uh what about you carrie who were who were the guys who grabbed you
0: I mean, I really started following baseball, Roger, in 2000. And I'll I'll tell you the story. I was like, you know, I was one of those kids who was looking at Pokemon cards. And I think my parents were just (laughs) so enraged by that uh, because my mom grew up a diehard Giants fan. Her dad took her to games at Candlestick and she was at the 89 World Series Earthquake game and has really vivid memories. I think she really wanted to share those memories with me. And when I was five years old, I was looking at Pokemon cards, but when I turned six, (laughs) I got my tonsils out. And so a six-year-old bedridden, you can't like, you know, play, play with cards all day. You've got to find something on television. And I remember watching the Giants and they played a game. I think it was interleague play first year of interleague play, maybe, or one of the first years uh, against the Oakland A's where they put up like 15 runs and The first time I'd ever really sat down and watched baseball on TV, the Giants were mashing home run after home run, and it was totally happenstance that this was the game that they did it, where they just happened to have the offensive game of the season. And from that point forward, I started to follow the team really closely, and it wasn't just Barry Bonds. It was, this was a time when JT Snow was playing an amazing first base, when Rich Aurelia was hitting 30 home runs, when Jeff Kent was your second baseman. And so I really remember when the Giants broadcast would go to commercial break and they'd have the preview of the next inning coming up and you'd see something like Aurelia Kent Bonds do up. I thought, I- I'm not getting up right now. I can't wait to see this. And I remember the trade deadline when they got Jason Schmidt and how Schmidt made me really feel strongly about pitching because you just saw the way that he dominated opposing hitters with the incredible changeup and so fun to watch, so competitive. And you go from that to when the time I started playing baseball, I, I was a pitcher and Tim Linskin was coming up. Yeah. And I, I remember sitting at the computer in my parents' kitchen as a ten or eleven year old, listening to the Fresno Grizzlies road radio broadcast of Tim Lincecum pitching maybe in Tacoma against the Rainiers, and you know this is all I had at that point. There was no visual of Tim Lincecum, <laughs> uh, what he was doing at AAA. It was the road radio broadcast, hearing him strike guys out and thinking, I can't wait for this era to begin. And you go from Bonds as your magnetic star to Linscombe, who really drew me in. And then by the time I was in high school, Buster Posey was up. And, you know, I never told Buster Posey that I was, you know, I wore his (laughs) jersey, that I wore his shirt, because that would have been the most embarrassing thing in the world to admit to a player. Uh, But, I mean, the Giants went from generational talent to generational talent to generational talent. They won World Series. And so... I think I was booked in by the power, the speed, the guys who could do what other players when I'd watch these visiting teams on TV the things that other teams and other players couldn't do. And that was hit a ball in a McCovey Cove like Bonds, throw the chains up, change up like Schmidt, yeah, and yeah. be as dominant as Tim Lincecum while looking like, you know, he was going to go bag groceries the next day because <laughs> he just had the everyman persona to him. And that's what this Giants team has lacked for two years. It's something that no one else has, the ingredient that, you know, the Cincinnati Reds bring in spades. Ellie De La Cruz, Reds fans are upset that the guy's not getting on base right now. <laughs> but when he does get on base, you can't wait to watch Ellie De La Cruz run. And when Giants players get on base, you're thinking, how are they going to stay out of the double play? Right. Because that's, that's the reality of the situation right now. It's like Tyro Estrada might be able to steal you a bag, but no one else can. No one else is going to run down the ball in the gap and have their hat fly off, like you said, with Willie Mays rounding the bases or playing center field. And it's just the lack of athleticism is so jarring. And this series against the Diamondbacks really brought it out. And every time they play the Dodgers, it's brought out. And so I hope for Giants fans sake that these kids live up to not just the promise and hope that they can bring about with their skills and their tools, but the athleticism that Giants fans have come to know and love from the team that's been sorely lacking. It is so depressing to me that
1: uh, i'll read an article i just read an article on baseball america stolen bases are up something like 70 percent this year yeah it's an incredible number and i don't know if that's attempts or successes and you watch giant baseball and you would have no idea that that is going on in the rest of the league they've essentially abandoned the stolen base as a weapon the second half of the year i think they had four yeah something like that um and not many more attempts than that that really is a little depressing to watch. Um, yeah.
0: Because I'll, I'll interject real quick, just because yeah. it reminds me of something that Stephen Vogt said to me the first time that I was covering Stephen Vogt in Cincinnati when he came up and he made his Giants debut. He has the big night with the, the home run and his first attack. Yeah. The next day, he gave a really interesting interview about offense and baseball. And he said, You know, it's never been harder to string together three hits in an inning than it is right now in Major League Baseball. And I thought to myself, yeah, I mean, pitching's better. You, there's a lot more strikeouts. And he goes, but three hits is how this team has to score. And I think that's why we're struggling. And he may have said it off the record at the yeah. time. He, he may have been, hey, look, you know, the reason we're not very good is because we're not fast and we don't hit a lot of home runs. And if you're relying on three hits in Major League Baseball, that's not going to get the job done. And this Giants team in 2023 – it's a three hits or bust team right now because they're not hitting home runs and they're not stealing bases. And if yeah. you need three hits, your offense is just going to be terrible.
1: Well, so let's talk since we're dancing around the entertainment question, let's talk about the the Tom Verducci article that oh, yeah. came out this week that made a bit of a stir in, in giant circles. Uh, and I know there are a lot of people unhappy about it. I don't know that it was unfair. I think there are a lot of giants, fans criticizing about some of the same things the kind of endless bit parts and mix and matching and there's no starter there's a bunch of guys throwing three innings i mean there are giants fans complaining about this um one of the things that i saw repeatedly on cider giants twitter after that article came out was it's it's true but this isn't really where they want to end up they want to end up in a different place and i actually thought about that for a while and i'm I find myself wondering, is there compelling evidence for that? I mean, obviously, they don't want these results. And obviously, they want the farm system to contribute more than it has over the last few years. Is it true that once they get to that point where the team is sort of a farm system-based team and hopefully more successful, that operationally, they are going to change how they view the game-by-game, inning-by-inning, looking-for-marginal-upgrades approach that
0: has become their their DNA? I would say no. I would say that 2021 is almost exactly how they want this thing to go, where you've got a few everyday players in a Buster Posey, a Brandon Crawford, a Brandon Belt, a Mike Yastrzemski. You've got your everyday guys who are going to face righties and lefties, and then you've got your righty killers, your lefty killers – And your matchups, you know, the Giants loved having Darren Ruff in 2021 because he could start against lefties. And then late in the game, if you've got Austin Slater out there and you need a pinch hitter, well, Ruff can play first base and then he can go out to left field if you need to. It's maximum flexibility, maximum versatility. I would argue that a lot of the Giants identity is wrapped up in, hey, we know we're not going to get eight to nine everyday players and we're not going to try eight to nine everyday players we can hope for four or five and then we'll improve on the margins with these guys who are so good at what they do like they hope that Austin Slater can be the greatest pinch hitter of all time against lefties forever that they build a roster out of out of those players and you can correct me if i'm wrong but i think organizationally they're a lot closer philosophically to you know this extreme of wanting to bullpen games and wanting to find the, 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 you know, advantage in the margins that a lot of people actually realize.
1: I actually made that point that I think that there was some, there was absolutely some contingency to how the pitching turned out this year. But mm. I think, I mean, with the guys they brought to spring that they did have an idea of lots of four inning three inning, four inning piggyback tandem starts as a way to keep people fresh which they yeah. did for a long time, people not named Camillo Duvall. Most of the rest <laughs> of the staff was fresh because you were getting two, three pitchers taking down three innings at a time. I actually think that was baked into the bone this year. I think that kind of creative strategy towards pitching is what the organization wanted to do. Yes. Uh, whether they wanted better performances out of people or better health it's, it's a different thing. But I do think that is the blueprint. I don't think the Atlanta Braves, where you run the same – eight people out there every single day and the starters pitch eight innings or the Philadelphia Phillies where everybody on the team is a first round pick taken in the top 10 picks of the draft <laughs> and making $300 million.
0: I don't think that's the blueprint here going forward. Yeah, I totally agree. And I say that because I covered the 2021 team and they were so proud of their ability to give Brandon Belt and Brandon Crawford days off and say, hey, look, we're not going to lose that much here. We're going to keep these guys fresh throughout the course of the regular season. So I think they came in thinking – hey, if we get Ross Stripling down to 100 innings as opposed to 120 or 140 innings, he's going to be even better. He's going to be even fresher. He's not going to be facing guys the second or third time through the order like a traditional starter. If we get Sean Mania into this piggyback role where he's going four innings at a time and mostly facing pockets of lefties, you're maximizing the value that Sean Mania can bring the ball club. And I, I think there's another component to that article that I saw a lot of people talking about and it was saying, Well, you know, it's not just the Giants who are doing this. There's a lot of other teams who are doing this. The Giants are just made the example. Look at the NL Central, look at the Rays. And my counter to that is the standard in San Francisco should be higher. Don't, don't compare yourself to the Cincinnati Reds <laughs> and the Pittsburgh Pirates and all these teams who flounder in mediocrity. If the front office and ownership tells you that the playoffs are the goal on an annual basis and the standard in terms of an entertainment value is watching these incredible talents who you grew up on, I grew up on, and every generation of Giants fans since the team moved west in 1958 has grown up on, the standard should be much higher. The expectation should be much higher. Don't get upset that this article wasn't written about, you know, the Tampa Bay Rays who, you know, go in and out of competitive stretches every five years. Be upset that the Giants aren't holding themselves to a higher standard. Be upset that you aren't holding the team to a higher standard in my regard.
1: I, I, you know, I, I kind of, I say that a lot in my own head. I don't say this out loud a lot because it sounds dumb to say that wins aren't the most important thing. But I do think that as much time as we devote to this sport, as much passion as we bring to it, there is something more we should ask of it than simply a bottom line, right? That's That we want that, but that's not the end of what we want for all we give this sport. Uh, So let me ask you this question. Should uh, a president of baseball operations worry about entertainment or be concerned or factor that into the plans?
0: Yes, without a question in my mind, yes. And I think that it's different maybe in a sport where you're playing uh, 16 or 17 Sundays a year, and you know that you're going to lose a certain number of players to injury like the NFL. It's different in basketball where you've definitely got to rest your superstars and the playoffs and titles are the only thing that matter. And the discourse is all about NBA titles and who's hoisting Larry O'Brien at the end of the year in baseball. I think it's different because fans have to be invested from the first day of spring training to the end of October. It is a massive time commitment. It's a massive emotional investment and fans deserve to, be rewarded for their loyalty and their trust, because ultimately you're not going to be able to fill a ballpark based on just wins. And I wish I could say that that was different. I wish I could say if the giants won 95 games this season, they'd be selling out every game at Oracle park. But I think I know that's not true. I think yeah. I know that, you know, if they did get the best versions of Ross Stripling and Sean Mania and Mitch Haniger and Michael Conbordo, and it all worked out and all went according to plan, they would be selling out Oracle park but I don't think that that's the case. I do think if Kyle Harrison and Marco Luciano and Luis Matos and Patrick Bailey are all-star caliber players, they have a really good shot at getting back to sellouts to Oracle Park. And maybe the attendance will never look like what it did from 2010 to 2017 when the streak ended. But I think that weekend games, they can get to 40, 42,000. I think that homegrown talent is the key to getting them there and I think that entertainment value with these homegrown kids and with the way that you build a roster and bring in superstars, that absolutely has to be a consideration if you're building a sustainable product.
1: Yeah, and uh, I I don't know if we talk about it enough because really it's the position players who have had such yes. an impact on this year, but there are a lot of pitching arms coming up in this system. Kyle Harrison, Keaton, Wen are the beginning of it, Mason black yeah. has had a really good year. He's not far away. Carson Seymour is going to be ready for AAA. they are starting to stack up some pretty impressive arms. Now, whether they're going to, you know, run them out there and you, you know, that Harrison starting on Tuesday uh, or not uh, who's to say, um, but there are a lot of arms coming. Um and I think maybe that's going to be the strength of this team going forward uh, as opposed to the bats. The bats, it,
0: some guys need to take a step for sure. Car- Carson Seymour was Darren Ruff trade, right? Yes. Okay, Carson so, is- Carson, so Carson Seymour then can be sent back to the Mets in the Pete Alonzo trade this offseason, right? A- absolutely. And then <laughs> when, when they DFA, him, we
1: can re-sign. <laughs> uh, exactly. Yeah, that would be something. Hey, I, I want to end – Before we go, I was thinking about this the other day. Uh, I was thinking about this yesterday. Since we talked about our origin stories, I'm going to go to kind of the other end. Uh, Obviously, the reason I'm a Giants fan has a lot to do with my father, who was (laughs) at the first weekend of San Francisco Giants play ever, who lived and died by this team uh, and took us to games all the time. Uh, the last game I ever watched with my dad uh, it was a visit near the end of his life. He came out to DC to visit us, and we sat down and watched a game in Milwaukee in 2011, which happened to be the major league debut of wow. Brandon Crawford when he hit that curveball into the bullpen for a grand slam. Um, and obviously, uh, I may be losing the last link to my father this week uh, in my Giants fandom. So I want to ask you for some Brandon Crawford
0: memories before we go. I mean, I think that. When I think of Brandon Crawford, it's less the individual moments. Of course, there's the home run in 2014 in the playoffs. There's the Crawford panic flip that they turn in the World Series. There's so many great moments. I think all of 2021. But to me, more so than anyone, just someone who I I really feel like it was a privilege to cover because – He took it so seriously that he was representing the hopes and dreams of every kid who grew up a Giants fan and never got to play for the franchise. Think about the millions of kids who grew up wanting to play for the San Francisco Giants and being Giants fans and going to games at Candlestick, going to games at Oracle. This guy understood what it meant at such a deep level. I mean, his dad's at every game. And he's, he, his dad is rooting for him like you would root for your son at a 12-year-old Little League game to have success. That is the kind of deep connection that the Crawford family has to this franchise and this fan base. And I, I think that, you know, you telling that story about you and your dad, I think Brandon would resonate with that so much. And I think it's why, you know, this time in his career where he's on the injured list hoping for one more game. I just really hope that he gets that opportunity to shine because there are so many people who have stories just like that, that he loves hearing, he takes seriously, and he knows that he represented that link.
1: Yeah, I I can't imagine how special it's been for him to be able to share his career with his family like that. I mean, I talked to the minor league guys who are from Northern California and how special it is to have their family come to San Jose, but to have a career like that where your dad is there every day is... Unbelievable. It's got to be a dream come true for him. And, and, and I hope that uh, he's really enjoyed that ride. Um, Okay, Gary. Well,
0: is there anything else we haven't touched on for today that we need to? Oh gosh. I mean, the Arizona fall league kids came out. Uh, there's, there's so much that we could get into, but. I, I have a feeling we'll be recording next week too. So, uh, <laughs> i blooms firing and how, how that parallels Farhan Zaidi, that could be an off season topic for us. And yeah, that's when I wanted to dig in. actually. Yeah. yeah. I think, uh, I think we'll save some of our best material. So we have things to talk about next week. Exactly. Exactly. But good way to end it on Brandon Crawford. And I think that, uh, Yeah, Crawford is one of those players who people felt a a link to, who people felt a pull to to come to the ballpark because he provided that element that no other team had with the defensive shortstop who made, made magic all the time. Four gold gloves. I mean, to me, a top 10 position player in the San Francisco Giants era, and maybe that's something we can debate next week, so. I got him in my bobblehead collection back here. I, I like, <laughs> is that a Richmond bobblehead you got back for him? Unfortunately, my Crawford
1: is a San Francisco bobblehead. All most of these guys are minor league ones, but that one is is a San Francisco one. Um, and the other thing I just want to say before we go about Crawford is there's an example of how development can be unpredictable and non-linear and unexpected. And he crafted himself a career that I think scouts who who were high on him at UCLA. Did not see the offensive career he ended up putting on, and and all credit to him for that. Right. Um, well, so we have plenty to talk about next week. Uh, I'm going to thank my listeners, Carrie. Uh, you can you can thank your listeners as well. This is so <laughs> thank much fun. My listeners as well. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we'll be back next week on the There Are Giants slash Carrie Crowley podcast.